Hello, world. Today's guest is episode two, part two, with Dom D'Agostino. Dom is a research scientist for the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition, and the primary focus of Dom's laboratory is developing and testing metabolic-based therapies, including ketogenic diets, ketone supplements, and metabolic-based drugs. Dom's research has also been supported and funded by the Office of Naval Research and the Department of Defense. Please welcome Dom D'Agostino. Thank you for coming on the show again, man. I really appreciate it. You've been on here before, um, but for the new listeners and viewers, why don't you let them know what you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate being on. Thanks, Danny. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I was trained. My formal like education is uh, neuroscience. Well, it was nutrition as an undergrad, and then I gravitated to neuroscience and physiology where I studied the neural control of autonomic regulation. So the brainstem mechanisms of, of how and why we breathe. And those oxygen and, and CO2 chemoreceptor regions, sort of. Press a little closer, just a little bit. Pull, pull, push yeah. the mic a little bit closer to you. Closer, yeah. yeah. And um, so my research on uh, the neural mechanisms of, of respiration led me to uh, – to diving physiology. So I was an avid diver, uh, you know, in my, during my PhD and that led to opportunities to do my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, in diving physiology, specifically funded by the department of defense office of Navy research, where I did work on, um, looking at oxygen toxicity seizures, which limits Navy seal diving. And I spent, quite a few years developing hyperbaric technologies and testing these technologies in biological systems uh, to fully to to understand how hyperbaric oxygen works and how the benefits but I was actually really focused on the negative consequences of being exposed to very high levels of oxygen and uh, and then that that topic led me to the ketogenic diet because ketones are neuroprotective and then the ketogenic diet was actually used as an anti-seizure anti-convulsant therapy and oxygen toxicity seizures which limits hyperbaric oxygen Uh, you can't go above for example three atmospheres of oxygen with hyperbaric because you have an oxygen toxicity seizure and uh, and also for military diving it's a limitation when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So 
I was very excited at this point in time when I discovered the ketogenic diet, which I studied nutrition as an undergrad, but never knew the ketogenic diet was actually developed for epilepsy and for seizure disorders. So it gave me the opportunity back uh, about 15 years ago to steer my research away from drug research into studying uh, the neuroprotective effects of this, you know, high fat, uh, diet, which, uh, it was not a very good career move if you're going into academia and that your whole, uh, part of being in academia is to pull in federal dollars to advance your research program and putting a lot of time and effort into studying a high fat ketogenic diet. There was no funding for, for this, but I knew it worked and I knew there was good science that could be done to support this, uh, approach. And, uh, and then that springboarded my sort of path uh, to where I am now. And um, you're at USF, right, yeah. currently? Yep. Yeah, University of uh, South Florida, specifically the Morsani College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also have an affiliation with the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, or IHMC. And, uh, and so I work in different capacities uh, through those two institutes. Um. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, you said a lot of your studies are in hyperbarics. And is that specifically hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yeah. uh, Well, yeah. Hyperbaric oxygen, like at a fundamental basic science level. So we do, I originally started uh, the first project that I had was pretty esoteric. It was developing hyperbaric atomic force microscopy and Uh, Atomic force microscopy will give you like the scanning resolution of electron microscopy, but you can uh, image living tissue with it and cells. So uh, we were using this technology and then part of I spent a a number of years putting a hyperbaric microscope inside of a customized uh, an atomic force microscope inside a customized hyperbaric chamber and then using it on a variety of different cell types. So the question is, uh, the question that, you know, the military was funding us for is like essentially what happens to cells inside the cell when you hit it with a high concentration of oxygen? We never knew the answer to this because no one had a hyperbaric, you know, microscope, right? So, um, so I started my research on looking at cells, uh, looking at mitochondria, looking at like free radical production in cells, mitochondrial function and things like that with muscle cells, brain cells, cancer cells, uh, human dermal fibroblast cells, and doing a lot of research there. And then later, I was able to get more funding and expand hyperbaric oxygen research into animal models, uh, where we were looking at not only seizures, but also looking at cancer. And we published uh, a number of studies on uh, using hyperbaric oxygen as a means to further augment different uh, cancer, anti-cancer uh, Protocols, and that would be with nutritional ketosis and and other things we're working on in the lab. So, and then, you know, a couple years after doing animal research, uh, we got funding as a subcontract working at Duke, and they have Duke they, at Duke. They have an amazing environmental research facility that NASA uses, the military uses, where we have subjects on a ketogenic diet that are being put inside a hyperbaric chamber and. They use, uh, we're taking, we're getting tons of data from them, blood data, blood gases. They go in, uh, 
uh, on a standard diet and then they go in on a ketogenic diet with ketone supplementation. And then we look at uh, their cognitive function, their reaction time. They play a video game simulator. They're exercising. Like it's like probably the craziest setup uh, you can think about. And we push them to the edge of a seizure by giving them a very big dose of hyperbaric oxygen. And we monitor their brain activity through EEG. And then we essentially decompress like right before they're going to get hit by a seizure. So we have sort of uh, ways to predict it. Um, so there's that. So we moved from cells to mitochondria to cells to animal studies and then to human clinical trials, which is a registered clinical trial on clinicaltrials.gov. And then I myself and my wife were involved uh, it, with an undersea mission where we lived in a hyperbaric environment. For me, uh, it was 10 days and my wife it was nine days. And that's the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, which is a hyperbaric mission where you live in saturation. And if you live in saturation more than 24 hours, you become an aquanaut. So both of us have became aquanauts. Uh, hmm. Just from our research background, our diving background, we were selected for, the, for that mission where we get to train with astronauts. It's part of the astronaut training program. Oh, uh, wow. Is. So we get to work with... Uh, and the, my crew, crew member or my uh, commander... Uh, Dr. Shell uh, Lindgren and uh, Samantha Christopheretti, who's an e uh, European Space Agency astronaut, they were just selected to go up in, in April, I think, to ISS. Uh, so they were both NEMO aquanauts with us. So, so yeah, the hyperbaric stuff has been very interesting. We went, you know, from cells to to mitochondria, tissues, animals, different types of animal models, to human clinical trials, to being research subjects ourselves, where we're doing research, you know, on human subjects, where we are the subject <laughs> in a hyperbaric environment. So that's, um, although I don't really talk about it that much, hyperbaric research is a big part of what we do. And people know me as the keto guy or ketogenic diet guy, but that's very much uh, interconnected with the hyperbaric world because ketosis is neuroprotective and has anti-seizure effects. One of the reasons I want to talk to you about that is because a, a really close friend of mine just bought a hyperbaric chamber for mm -hmm. himself. Like one, it's one of those consumer hyperbaric chambers that like yeah. the ball players use and stuff. And it's supposed to come in this week. And he had to get an actual prescription written to buy it. Mm -hmm. And it made me curious. I'm like, are there, are there any negative effects to using these hyperbaric chambers? And like, are they, do you have to regulate yourself or is it okay to just get in this? Cause I plan on using his hyperbaric chamber. Mm -hmm. Um, is it okay just to use it whenever you want or is there, is there risks involved? Yeah. Well, I would, I would highly recommend, you know, getting hyperbaric medicine guidebook, which tells you, uh, so, the oxygen is a drug and if you know right now we are breathing 20 percent oxygen so you know r roughly roughly speaking 20.6 percent so and the rest of it's nitrogen really so most of our our breath is actually nitrogen that we're breathing in. a little bit of co2 a little bit of argon some some gas so if this room was filled with oxygen a hundred percent oxygen and we were kept in here and you came back three days later we'd be dead so, and that's not even a hyperbaric pressure, right? So if you replace this room with oxygen, yeah, we would die. Uh, we would get something called pulmonary oxygen toxicity. Our lungs would just start like blowing up because it's producing oxygen free radicals. And we would have edema and they would, we would die a very painful death. 
So you, you have to understand oxygen's a very powerful drug. And at hyperbaric pressures, which means we are at one atmosphere of oxygen now, when you increase the barometric pressure to two atmospheres and then go to three atmospheres, that's uh, every atmosphere is 10 meter of seawater or 33 feet. So if you were to dive down to 10 meters or 33 feet, that would be two atmospheres. Another 10 meters, you know, 66 feet, it would be three, three uh, atmospheres. At that hyperbaric pressure, what happens is the oxygen, your hemoglobin is already saturated, right? Because, uh, But because of the increased barometric pressure, the partial pressure of oxygen uh, would increase. And you actually get more oxygen into the plasma independent of hemoglobin. And that would cause the partial pressure of oxygen in your tissues and your brain to skyrocket. And that produces oxidative stress and that would kill you if you sustained it for a long period of time. So which happens in different, you know, military dives and things like that. So you have to adjust the ratio of nitrogen to oxygen, in some cases helium and and other breathing gases. so getting back to, you know, you have a hyperbaric chamber. So my question would be, is it a hard shell chamber? Because a hard it's shell a soft chamber, one. Soft shell. Okay. So a soft shell chamber would really only go to about 1.3 atmospheres. So what that means is it can only basically take you to a quarter of an atmosphere higher than we're at now. So it's probably made out of a polymer, like a Kevlar, even mm-hmm. you know, bigger, different ones. So the, the chances of you hurting yourself you know, it are far less likely, but if you I'm were gonna to pull s- up the receipt for it, you keep going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to stay in that hyperbaric chamber for a protracted period of time, then you could potentially, you know, damage your lungs. You're not going to get oxygen toxicity seizures or CNS oxygen toxicity, which is it called, uh, because you need to be essentially at a higher pressure, which would involve a, um, a hard shell chamber. So a lot of the work that we do, I mean, we have chambers that go to like 60, 70 atmospheres. We have, you know, some, a lot of what we do is, is within the military diving operations of about five atmospheres and above. And, um, but yeah, there's, you know, I study the negative effects of hyperbaric oxygen and that by looking at the various mechanistic things that hyperbaric oxygen does, like, you know, enhances wounding, wound healing, uh, it decreases inflammation, it activates stem cells. Most of the people who email me are people who are using hyperbaric oxygen to uh, enhance their athletic performance, to speed recovery. Uh, they use it as a like a nootropic, so oxygen as a drug to increase you know growth factors in the brain, like BDNF, and uh, and uh, you know research was done to demonstrate, and I think this research was done by a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Steve Thom, when he was at University of Pennsylvania at the time. He showed that hyperbaric oxygen can increase stem cell production and then the release of stem cells. So there are various drugs that people take to increase stem cell production, or you could use autologous stem cells, you know, and inject them into yourself. Or you could undergo hyperbaric oxygen therapy and actually get your body to coax your body to generating more uh, stem cells. So that can aid the stem cells tend to get in the circulation and then they they hone in on areas that are damaged or inflamed Mm -hmm. and then it augments recovery uh, from there. So it could be internal things as, as well as external wounds, basically. What you're saying when you say, when you say yeah. wound healing, what do you define as like a wound, like a 
Yeah, so th- there's uh, about 14 different FDA-approved applications for hyperbaric oxygen, and the big one is probably wound healing. So if if a facility around here, if you just search, you know, where are hyperbaric mm-hmm. chambers around here, they're using it for mostly diabetic wounds, for people who are overweight and they have a wound like on their foot. And that because many people are overweight or they have diabetes, that impairs blood flow to the area where a diabetic wound becomes resistant to healing. And when you give hyperbaric oxygen, it hyper oxygenates the wound and reverses hypoxia. So it, it facilitates the, you know, the it increases the partial pressure of oxygen at the wound site. And by doing so, it increases energy within the wound. So energy production could be down by 90%, like in an ischemic wound. But when you hit it with oxygen, then uh, you're stimulating ATP production, which is like our energy currency, and stimulating metabolism, and the wound can then heal. And then it has, um, so it's used mostly for wound healing, uh, gangrene. There are anaerobic bacteria that grow in situations where there's not a lot of oxygen, and you can get an infection and get and gas gangrene can kill you and the only thing that we know that can kill this anaerobic bug is hyperbaric oxygen uh it's also used for uh, decompression sickness if you're diving like even in recreational diving and you stay down too longer if you stay down too long and you pop up to the surface mm-hmm. the nitrogen's still in your system and the bubbles are going to want to come out so it's called the bends underwater if you come up too fast but decompression sickness will kill you. You can get an air embolism in your lung or your brain. So if someone pops up to the surface too quick because they have some kind of emergency or, or something, that person needs to go inside a hyperbaric chamber and be slowly decompressed. Uh, so the chambers around here, 90% of them are used for wound healing and then also for uh, diving, for uh, reversing decompression sickness mm-hmm. and uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. If you have carbon monoxide poisoning, mm-hmm. a way to save a life is the only way to do it is really with hyperbaric oxygen. So these are some of the applications. Uh, and there are many, including uh, for cancer, for like wound healing, if you have radiation, if you're being treated with radiation that causes radiation necrosis and hyperbaric oxygen can reverse and heal that tissue that has been radiated by radiation so that becomes a way where patients can conceivably if they've had radiation therapy they could get a prescription for hyperbaric oxygen and the prescription you mentioned a prescription that's usually for uh levels of oxygen that are you know above 1.4 atmospheres like 2 or 2.5 or even 3 atmospheres really yeah, because that would that would require a hard shell chamber. Yeah, this is called a respiro. Respiro, and do you know it's, the, it's this thing right here? The working pressure of the uh, chamber. That's this. Oh yeah, that is a soft shell chamber. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're gonna get that and have it installed in your house, there's certain regulations you need to follow, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, you might have to have a hyperbaric uh, tech come out and set it up because, you know, you don't want to mess around with oxygen. If you were to get a hard shell chamber, then that's a whole nother set of regulations and guidelines that you have to follow. But, you know, most of our research has been done within the pressure ranges that would require a hard shell chamber. But I do believe that there's a lot of benefit that you can get from these soft shell chambers. And it's, it's quite a bit safer too. Yeah, you know, uh, to that's the one like LeBron uses. I know I've seen videos of him using that, that one. one. Yeah, 
Yeah, so he's using it to like augment his recovery, like in between when they, when he has like during the playoffs when they have a game every other day, and yep. he's spending you know thirty forty minutes a game sprinting up and back and forth yeah. on a full court. It's yeah, I think yeah. he uses that on his off day to kind of like speed up his recovery because I'm sure it's a lot of wear and tear on your muscles and joints and yep. stuff. Yeah, so I communicate with a number of NFL guys. Uh, even I think around here, Vinny Testaverde is around here. Okay. I remember he came to one of my talks actually at the college of medicine at USF. And, uh, and it was, he was pretty cool to talk with. I think, I think he has his own hyperbaric chamber. Um, yeah, I communicate with quite a few, uh, NHL, uh, NFL guys, uh, you know, military guys that are using it to speed recovery. And LeBron James, I think he's on a keto diet too, or low carb diet, I think. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean like low sugar, low, I mean, a lot of these guys, I haven't personally, but I've communicated with people who, Mm -hmm. you know, have coached him in some ways. Yeah. I have, I've had heard things about his, I've heard people talk about people who are close to him talk about like what his diet is. And I've seen like Mm -hmm. videos of him talking about when he, especially like when they're in the playoffs towards the end of the season, when it's like coming down to the line that he really, really goes out and he cuts out carbs, eats a lot of steaks, a lot of high fat stuff yep, and yep. and um completely cuts out sugar 100%. Yeah. as well as the oxygen. So I don't know. Yeah. I know, I know he spends he's known for spending more money on his body than any other athlete. Spends he says he claims that he spends over a million dollars a year on his body spe- specifically. Whatever that wow. means. Whatever I, that means. <laughs> that's easy. To, I mean cuz there's I mean there's a lot of drugs and stuff too. Yeah. I guess you could take to enhance performance that but these guys have to i don't know how they get tested but for supplements it has to be nsf you know Mm -hmm. certified to be used um yeah there's a lot of things that you could do Uh, a lot of it's untested and you know not really uh, a lot of science to back it up but that's really just because there's not a whole lot of funding to go into evaluating uh, various technologies for enhancing athletic performance. M- many of these things are, you know, g- hyperbaric oxygen has been, all the funding goes to wound healing. Like, you know, managing ischemic wounds is a multi, multi-billion dollar healthcare problem right now. I mean, it's it's been, uh, and, and we don't have anything to basically speed wounds. I, we have, I had a PhD student that worked under me that looked at ischemic wounds. And one of the biggest things that enhanced the wound healing process was, uh, the ketone supplements, ketogenic diet and ketone supplements. So all the wound healing, you know, technologies and, and patents out there are about putting things onto wound to augment wound, you know, healing. But when we change our metabolic physiology, we are lowering blood glucose, lowering insulin, reducing inflammation. So that, that speeds, um, greatly enhances blood flow by like 20 to 30 to even 40%. And then the ketogenic diet or even exogenous ketones increases something called adenosine. Adenosine is a vasodilator. So we get more blood flow to the region. And that blood that's flowing into the region has ketones. And ketones are metabolic substrates that mm. can reactivate cells and they have anti-inflammatory effects, but uh, when you increase circulation and you have ketones in circulation and you're reducing glucose, which could be pro-inflammatory, when glucose is low, ketones are elevated, right? If you take, if you're on a ketogenic diet or you take ketone supplement. So those ketones can then uh, kind of aid in that uh, enhancing the metabolic state of the wound, which is really the definition of impaired wound healing is that there's Mm -hmm. low, uh, energy state, low blood flow. 
and um, yeah, we're sitting on some papers now. I need to get out, but she did her PhD dissertation on that. And when that's coupled with the ketog- with uh, hyperbaric oxygen, when you couple ketone supplementation or the ketogenic diet with hyperbaric oxygen, that's greatly enhancing the wound healing process. And one could extend that when we work out, we are basically, you know, you're trying to enhance wound healing. You know, you, your body is banged up, mm-hmm. you know, tissue is damaged, and then you have tissue remodeling. That's part of the adaptive process uh, to training. When we train a muscle, we break it down. And the adaptive process of training is skeletal muscle protein synthesis, remodeling, and then the faster we can do that, the the faster we can get back into the game and and you talked about like the the stem cell production and stem Mm -hmm. cell release um especially when it comes when it comes to i can understand how it can help um heal people that are affected by radiation and chemotherapy when it comes to cancer Mm -hmm. could it be used as a replacement for chemotherapy or radiation to any extent i know it's obviously scientifically not there yet but Mm -hmm. do you think that's a possibility uh, well, there's a couple things to like, you know, to answer that question. Um, when people do undergo chemo and radiation, sometimes their blood counts drop like a certain, um, their hematocrit drops and, uh, white blood cells drop. So, and stem cells can drop too. And hyperbaric oxygen could be a way to augment that, uh, if we had the Israelis showed that with hyperbaric oxygen, that, it can actually increase HIF-1-alpha, which is counterintuitive because HIF-1-alpha is hypoxia-inducible factor alpha. When we undergo hyperbaric oxygen and then we come out of the chamber, our body senses relative hypoxia just because of the relative changes, and that can stimulate HIF-1-alpha and then maybe actually increase our red blood cell count. So some athletes may do hyperbaric oxygen to actually increase their red blood cell count. So that's uh, a little bit peripheral to the conversation. But and what does that do uh, to increase your red blood cell count? What does that mean? Yeah. Oh, that means like you're, you have more red blood cells. So you have greater oxygen ca- carrying capacity. And okay. so okay. athletes, uh, especially like cyclists and, you know, uh, elite level cyclists, uh, one of the go-to drugs in that world is erythropoietin or EPO. And then EPO will increase your red blood cell count that increases something called your hematocrit. And ultimately that's giving your body uh, a great, an advantage because you can carry more oxygen. Okay. So hyperbaric oxygen may be able to do that. And it's nice that you're augmenting your own physiology to increase the production of, of those cells. But your question with cancer in that, so we know radiation and chemotherapy work by uh, work, in killing cancer cells by augmenting reactive oxygen species or oxygen free radicals, right? We know about free radicals. Mm -hmm. So with radiation, if you apply radiation to a tumor, the radiation nicks the DNA and that's one way to kill it. But most of the radiation damage is actually a result of increasing oxygen free radicals, right? So uh, that's how radiation primarily works chemotherapeutic agents that kill cancer cells kill cancer cells by increasing oxidative stress in the cancer cells but it does it both of these modalities are chemotherapy and radiation are very potent carcinogenic agents so we are using a potent carcinogenic modality to kill cancer cells 
right? And it's doing it primarily through augmenting something called oxidative stress, uh, you know, our oxygen-free radicals. So hyperbaric oxygen is a way to naturally, uh, by increasing the partial pressure of oxygen in our body uh, and reversing tumor hypoxia, as a tumor grows, it outstrips its ability to supply oxygen because the blood vessels can't keep up to mm-hmm. the expanding biomass of the tumor. So the core of the tumor often becomes hypoxic. And when you put someone inside a hyperbaric chamber, that does a number of things. It reverses the tissue hypoxia inside the tumor. So the low oxygen in the tumor is reversed with high oxygen, hyperoxia. And when you hyperoxygenate a tumor tissue, that causes a massive burst in oxygen-free radicals for a number of reasons. The oxygen can get in the tumor because the oxygen is not being carried by red blood cells, which get caught in the little blood vessels. The oxygen is actually dissolved into the plasma, independent of hemoglobin. So this is very important because the pressure component of hyperbaric oxygen, which means the increase in barometric pressure, literally pushes the oxygen into the plasma. And then it could get into the little nooks and crannies, if you will, of the the tumor and... The tumor goes from, you know, a tissue PO2 of like two or three millimeters of mercury to like 150 to like 2000 millimeters of mercury, which is very, very high. And when all that oxygen is inside the tumor, because the tumor is like a bunch of screwed up cells that are also degrading, you have a lot of heme, like uh, heme proteins are being degraded and you have a lot of free iron and Oxygen in the presence of free iron in that environment drives something called the Fenton reaction. And then you have a massive burst of oxygen-free radicals, and and it's driving different pathways that kick on cell death within the tumor. Now, this can happen in normal healthy tissue, but it's greatly augmented in cancer tissue because uh, the cancer tissue's relative state is low oxygen. And when you reverse the tumor hypoxia and hyperoxygenate it, you get a correspondingly higher burst of oxygen-free radicals it's because the relative change is going to be higher, right? And then the, the oxygen-free radicals uh, feed into a pathway uh, because of the free iron that contribute to more reactive intermediates like the hydroxyl radical. And these things can help to essentially kill the cancer from the inside out. Uh, An important thing to note is that hyperbaric oxygen may further enhance the cancer-killing effects of of radiation and chemotherapy when they're done together. So, So, yeah, I believe that hyperbaric oxygen should be used for many different tumor types, and I think it has a lot of... uh, potential. I mean, in our lab, we coupled it with the ketogenic diet and saw that we could extend survival in mouse models of metastatic cancer. And that motivated us and many others. Uh, so when, study this. when it hyperoxygenates these tumors and you explained how the oxygen free radicals ex- ex- explode, mm-hmm. what does that physically do to the tumor itself? It just, the tumor will shrink? Will it die? Like what, what happens to the actual tumor or the, or the cancer tissue? Yeah. So, um, if we're talking about a solid tumor and then you apply, you know, hyperbaric oxygen, for example, uh, two to three atmospheres of oxygen for 60 minutes, three times a week, uh-huh. something like that. So that's a pretty, pretty big dose. 
what is happening to the tumor is that it's, you know, the tumor, like I mentioned, especially a growing tumor mass becomes hypoxic. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in the chamber and experiencing a high level of oxygen, and if you were to put an electrode inside the tumor and measure the oxygen, the level of oxygen would go up like 2000 times. So when that oxygen gets super high in the tumor, it's stimulating the production of these free radicals, which then kick on a number of different pathways that can essentially rupture the, t the mitochondria, start spitting out oxygen that creates oxidative stress. And then you oxidize membrane lipids, you oxidize proteins, you oxidize nucleic acids. This creates a lot of stress to the cell. Mm -hmm. And then cells literally start like like blowing up rupturing so when yeah so when i was uh some of the early studies that i did was actually developing hyperbaric atomic force microscopy and then later i made it a laser scanning confocal microscopy uh unit to this microscope and it's inside the chamber and we were looking at different cell types and one of the cell types were uh glioblastoma cell types which is a type of brain cancer mm -hmm. and uh, this particular cell type was u87 uh, glioblastoma multiforme so it's not super important but it was derived from a patient i think a 44 year old patient or whatever so i had the cell line preserved we plated the cells we put it inside the hyperbaric chamber and we we're looking at them and then we hit the cells with hyperbaric oxygen, and I noticed that the mitochondria started pumping out tons of superoxide. I had a dye to measure that. And then I would see the mitochondria disappear. They were blowing up underneath what? the microscope. And uh, as we were monitoring the fluorescent signal, which is the, the, the increase in the brightness of the cells corresponded to the production of oxygen-free radicals, as the cells became brighter, I saw the mitochondria disappearing. That means that they were blowing up. They were rupturing. And then I started to see cells dying at a far faster rate than any other cell that I looked at, including smooth muscle cells, fibroblasts, human, uh, rat neurons, and different, different cell types. So I thought this was very interesting. And that was done maybe in 2007 and eight, And then a couple years passed. And I realized that this was an important observation and no one made the observation uh, ever because no one had a microscope inside a hyperbaric chamber. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to different people at the Moffitt Cancer Center and then experts, you know, uh, who studied cancer. And they said, what you're observing in these cancer cells is probably due to something called the Warburg effect. So Otto Warburg really... Uh, was noted for, he got the Nobel Prize for um, uh, his work on the mitochondria and, and mitochondrial respiration. And he had a theory on cancer that cancer was a metabolic disease and that impaired mitochondrial activity, or what we call cellular respiration, impaired respiration would lead to compensatory compensation, uh, glycolytic compensation. So the cells, as the mitochondria became defective, uh, there would be an upregulation in uh, glucose consumption and glucose energy pathway called glycolysis. Mm. So, uh, you know, this this, his whole theory kind of was hinged upon damaged respiration, so damaged mitochondria. And 
when I was recording from these cancer cells, I noticed that they had a lot of mitochondria. There was no doubt that their mitochondria were working in some capacity. But I also noticed that when I increased the level of oxygen, the mitochondria had a rate of free radical production that was many, many fold higher than normal healthy cells. Meaning that when when we produce energy, when our, mitoc- our mitochondria produce energy in about you know, 80 to 90% of our energy comes from mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. A consequence of that energy production is the formation of an oxygen-free radical uh, called superoxide, and then that can go to hydrogen peroxide and ultimately potentially hydrogen uh, hydroxyl radical to more reactive intermediates. So that, that superoxide is always being produced, and it's like the exhaust on a car. You know, it's like the toxic thing that's being produced, but... Oxygen-free radicals are also signaling molecules, so there's a signaling function in addition to being a toxic-free radical. So, uh, so eliminating them completely is probably not a good idea. There's a balance, like mm-hmm. a redox balance. So with the tumor tissue is putting out proportionally far more oxygen-free radicals in response to the oxygen that I'm, I'm giving it. So giving tons of antioxidants are really not going to work because the mitochondria are already defective, right? So... What what I was witnessing is that I was witnessing damaged respiration and the mitochondria. When we talk about respiration, we're talking about mitochondrial, you know, uh, ATP production. Okay. It's like rest instead of respiring because they right. use oxygen. Okay. So, uh, so with cancer cells, you have damaged mitochondria and we call that their way of making energy is called cellular respiration or oxidative phosphorylation. And when you give the substrate for energy production, which includes oxygen, to the mitochondria, they produce proportionally more oxygen-free radicals, and they're essentially killing themselves from the inside out when you expose cancer cells to high-pressure oxygen. This is what we saw. This is what I saw underneath the microscope. So it made sense to me that this was happening because of the Warburg effect, which means cancer cells have rates of sugar consumption that are like 100 to 200 times higher. And they're using sugar as a fuel for two different reasons. One is because the mitochondria are defective and there's impaired mitochondrial ATP production. Another reason cancer cells use glycolysis to to get energy is that it uh, feeds into a pathway of biosynthesis. So uh, it's necessary for uh, uh, biosynthetic pathways to, to generate mm. uh, the expanding biomass of the tumor. Uh, using glucose in cancer cells, the cancer cells can also divert it to, it can increase the pentose phosphate pathway, which is a way that the cancer cells can actually increase their uh, antioxidant capacity through this path. So there's a number of different reasons, but the important uh the important thing to, to know is that cancer cells have defective mitochondria, and because cancer cells have defective mitochondria, we can exploit that defect th- with hyperbaric oxygen by using that as a tool to further increase oxidative stress in selectively in cancer cells. When we hit our body with hyperbaric oxygen, when we go inside a hyperbaric chamber, we have an increase in oxidative stress all through our body. But our normal healthy tissues have the adaptive uh, response that we can increase our endogenous antioxidant enzymes. So our tissues actually end up stronger because like exercise, when we exercise 
and do a super hard workout. And if we were to take our blood or take our tissue sample, you would see a lot of bad things going on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's actually the stress of exercise, right? So the adaptive response that comes after that makes our tissues stronger and it upregulates a number of pathways. Uh, I mean, with, you know, if you're training and lifting weights, you have skeletal muscle remodeling through protein synthesis and an upregulation of enzymes and things. So cancer cells really can't do that because when you hit cancer cells really hard with a high level of oxygen, it can actually trigger uh, cellular apoptosis and necrosis, which you can start killing off cancer cells. They simply do not have the capacity to deal with the massive burst of oxygen-free radicals that accompany uh, a big hit of hyperbaric oxygen. Same thing applies with a chemotherapeutic agent. So chemotherapeutic agents... Uh, they're not selectively, you know, augmenting right. oxidative stress. Radiation can be targeted to the tumor, but it has a lot of off-target effects. And then you get a lot of damage. Plus, that radiation, the chemo, is also creating more mutations in the tumor that could cause the tumor to mutate in a way to become more aggressive. So where it's hyperbaric oxygen, it it is a more gentle approach to increase oxygenation in the body and then you have selective hyperoxygenation and far greater oxidative stress in the tumor tissue for a number of different mm. reasons that I I went through but the tumor environment is a really good environment to apply hyperbaric oxygen because you have a lot of dead cells and a lot of free heme and that creates a lot of iron so when you apply oxygen it's almost like throwing gasoline on the fire and then you can to kill tumors so it all sounds really nice in theory, and it works really well in cell uh, model systems and animal model systems. High yeah. oxygen, no sugar. Uh, high oxygen and no sugar. Yeah. When you couple high oxygen with very low sugar or glucose, right, uh, like a ketogenic diet, by restricting sugar, that actually can restrict the something called the pentose phosph phosphate pathway. And by restricting you know, cellular antioxidants like glutathione, you basically impair the cancer cell's ability to protect itself while you're hitting it with high levels of oxygen. Uh, wow. So in theory, I mean, this is all textbook stuff that we know, you know, there's not a whole lot of motivation, though, from federal centers, uh, organizations that fund cancer research to like really further study hyperbaric oxygen. We just know that, you know, when you put certain patients and you give them hyperbaric oxygen, they do much better, you know, but we're basically using hyperbaric oxygen in the current scenario to reverse uh, radiation necrosis. So patients that are receiving radiation, they got really bad wounds. You give them hyperbaric oxygen and boom, they, they recover really fast. Their wounds heal up and then the cancer, you know, they have much better, you know, prognosis. Mm. Why do you think, why do you think that is? Why is so much of the, the clinical budget or clinical research trial budget, um, dedicated to not, why, why isn't it dedicated to things like hyperbaric oxygen or, 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 or diet, such as a ketogenic diet, restricting sugar and glucose, when clearly there's tons of tons of research and science to back that. Um, I, yeah. One of the things that I sent you in the email was uh, one of the things I came across was like 75%, I think, 70 to 90% of uh, U.S. clinical research funding is dedicated to drugs and okay. medical devices, I think it was. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the the National Institutes of Health is a major funder of research, right? And um, and I, I think uh, at least fifty billion dollars, I think, per year to clinical uh, research, and that could be drugs. And I know a small minority, not even one percent of that, is going into nutrition research. And with cancer, which is insane. Yeah. And with cancer, you have a number of different, you know, things that are being funded. It's over two for 2022. It's going to be over two hundred billion dollars in funding and pretty much no funding goes into cancer prevention. Right. So there's so much that we could be doing now uh, to prevent cancer from being a problem in the first place. So we could prevent a lot of cancer through lifestyle interventions like really, really, really move the needle like it's a huge lever to pull. so with, you know, there's not a whole lot of incentive for uh, funding nutrition, not a whole lot of incentive for funding hyperbaric oxygen. Um, and I think that's part of the reason. Um, and it's just easier to prescribe a drug, you know, and treat someone with, with the drug. And drugs do hold a lot of promise. We do drug research right. in our lab. Yeah, um, well, you're you're big into pharmacology. Are you? Oh yeah, yeah. You used, at I'm least in you a used pharmacology to department. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've looked at things like people. You might be familiar with like metformin, for example. Metformin's uh, a type two diabetes drug, and when we give it to cells, cancer cells in culture, more cells die. When we give it to animals that have, uh, you know, metastatic cancer, different tumors, they live a little bit longer. Uh, but it's, it's not as much as if we apply a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you know, uh, we've used something called dichloroacetate. Um, you know, my colleagues, uh, do drug research with a variety of different drugs. And when you compare, you know, research in preclinical animal models and with the ketogenic diet and what the ketogenic diet can do in extending life and reducing tumor, it's, it's really remarkable. So, and some drugs actually work much, much better in the context of a ketogenic diet. So there's certain metabolic drugs like uh, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors, for example, developed by Lou Cantley. I believe that the, they're largely mostly efficacious in the context of a ketogenic diet because, well, this particular drug, there's a counter-regulatory effect which causes an increase in insulin. And when you couple the drug with the ketogenic diet, that suppresses the hormone insulin, and then that actually makes the drug work. So a lot of the effects of the ketogenic diet is not just simply due by reducing sugar, but it has a major hormonal effect on the body, uh, including insulin, the hormone insulin, and then insulin signaling in general. You know, we're talking about AMP kinase and mTOR and all these can go down that route if you want to, but uh, it's hitting many downstream pathways that the pharmaceutical companies are scram- scrambling to develop drugs for, you know, these uh, pathways like, um, like mTOR specifically. So the ketogenic diet does that naturally. It does it in a way that it's not only hitting one pathway, that it's hitting many different pathways in uh, synergistically, if you will. So by lowering glucose, lowering insulin and insulin related signaling and also elevating ketones and then ketones by themselves have anti uh cancer effects anti-inflammatory effects and neuroprotective effects so if you put a brain tumor patient on to standard care which includes chemo and radiation and you put them on a ketogenic diet 
the ketogenic diet is putting metabolic stress on the tumor and making the tumor selectively vulnerable to those treatment modalities, including radiation and chemo. It helps helps you kill more tumor. Mm. Whereas uh, the healthy tissues are benefiting from the elevated ketones because the ketones are actually protecting the healthy tissues from the inflammatory effects of radiation, the reactive oxygen species. So they are neuroprotective. I mean, we know that sort of from a lot of the research that we've done, right? Because we hit cells, we hit animals, we hit humans with very high levels of oxygen. And it basically causes a massive burst of oxygen free radicals similar to radiation. Uh, But we are applying, we are doing it in the context of, elevated ketones and we typically do that with like uh, an exogenous ketone like a ketone ester or ketone uh, salt formulation so we deliver like that this? yes okay. yes uh the keto start product is yeah. the product that i use uh on a routine basis and you know there are more powerful forms of ketones in terms of esters but i probably wouldn't want to take them on a daily basis but under the context of certain extreme environments you know, you can deliver ketones uh, in a dose-dependent manner to be neuroprotective and also to improve performance resilience. So there's a breakdown of performance under certain environments, and we think that with the correct formulation of ketones or different energy intermediates, we can preserve that performance in extreme environments. What did you say the number was, again, for clinical research in the U.S.? How many billion? Uh yeah, I think, well, I'm just talking about the NIH. So just the NIH. Yeah, I mean, you have Department of Defense, NIH, many different organizations, foundations, and things yeah. like that, American Cancer Society. So for NIH, they have about 50 billion, uh, 50 billion. And, you know, that's that's not a whole, whole, when you think about, right, you know, cost. cancer research in general, just from all the different organizations, about two, it's going to, this year, it's going to be about $200 billion. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, the budget for nutrition is like less than like 1% of that. Less than 1% nutrition. of that. And the yeah. United States is, is what are that here? The number 68th in the world in healthy life expectancy. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know it was wow. that low, but uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty low. Uh, and I'd like to just go back to like nutrition when I talk about the NIH funded nutrition, they're really looking at like growth and development and preventing nutritional deficiencies. And maybe there's a big push now for NIH to, to understand personalized diets, like how certain diets affect different, different populations, but it, it's not in like the research that I'm talking about, you know right. what I mean? It's not like right. developing uh, healthy eating to prevent or delay cancer or to increase your outcome Mm-hmm. Uh, to improve your outcome if you have cancer. There's just like, not a lot of research in that area. Although I'd like to say that the National Cancer Institutes, because there's so much pressure and because there's an acknowledgement that cancer is in part a metabolic disease and probably in part a genetic disease too. There's a dynamic interplay between the two. Uh, the National Cancer Institute, they they recognize that, that, that nutrition is a big lever to pull. And there's a lot of research funding going into this idea of using nutrition to improve certain drug therapies, right? So, so there's the drug therapies are still the the you know the main 
treatment, but and nutrition is just really brought in to enhance the effects of certain drugs. <laughs> so that's <laughs> so backwards. Well, I, I kind of understand. So from the perspective of if you have a particular tumor type that you know could be responsive, and then for example, you know a, a treatment has limited efficacy. Uh, and it could be a chemotherapeutic drug, could be radiation, could be immune-based therapy. Let's let's bring the ketogenic diet in or nutrition therapies to make that that standard of care, which is not working, work. You know, so it's it's thought to be okay. unethical to use nutrition as a standalone therapy. So most of uh, uh, ten years ago, when I I realized that the ketogenic diet had the potential to be an anti-cancer. Uh, therapy for ca- for cancer. I went to clinicaltrials.gov and I saw maybe two or three different clinical trials. If you go to clinicaltrials.gov right now, clinicaltrials.gov, and type in ketogenic diet, you're going to see dozens, if not probably well over 30, maybe 40, 40 uh, clinical trials with the ketogenic diet. So there, that's like an explosion of ketogenic diet research. And the majority of them are very few of them are standalone uh, therapies. Most of them are using the ketogenic diet to augment immune therapy, to augment um, a metabolic drug, or to augment standard of care. You know, these therapies are what really generate the revenue for cancer treatment centers. You know, you're not going to get a ketogenic diet is not going to generate revenue for. Uh, so that that's kind of you know. But oxygen therapy could, right? Oxygen therapy could, yeah, yeah. So it seems no, like all the rich people, you know, can, can afford those things. They're so expensive. Those oxygen, hyperbaric oxygen chambers for your house, and, yeah. But you, you know, they do have the centers where you can go and rent one by the hour or whatever. Wound healing centers, yeah. Wound healing centers, they're, right? yeah, they're really big, and uh, so so I think cancer centers should be leveraging wound healing centers and sending people into multi place chambers uh, when they're go- undergoing their their chemotherapy, there's a lot that we don't know. So um, every person's response, almost like to diet, you know, your individual response to hyperbaric oxygen may vary and the dose may be different between different people, right? So the dose, uh, the timing, you know, the, the frequency, the duration, all these things need to be taken into account when, if we're talking about using hyperbaric oxygen as a, a treatment. So, and these are a lot of unknowns and I, I suspect that's a big reason in, in the world of wound healing, it's just, you know, five days a week, mm-hmm. you know, two atmospheres, 60 minutes or whatever. It's just like this cookie cutter approach. But when you're dealing with a cancer patient who may have impaired immune system, who may have, you know, uh, if they're really old, maybe you're pushing oxidative stress too high, like mm-hmm. in their body and they need. So with our protocol, that's actually why I did not do five days a week. That's why we did Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's kind of convenient and fit, fit in with a week. But uh, the idea was to come in with a big hit of oxygen, really stress out the cancer cells and have one day for the body to naturally adapt and upregulate its own antioxidant systems and then come in on Wednesday and hit it again and then a day of recovery and Friday come in and hit it again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this seemed to work really good right out of the gate. So we were just like, well, let's just stick with this. And then mm-hmm. we did try lower levels of oxygen. So we went from like, you know, 2.5 atmospheres of oxygen because a lot of people kept asking me. They had they have access to a soft chamber but not a hard chamber. So we went and did a mini pilot study with just 1.5 atmospheres of oxygen 
and we saw trends for improved survival, but it was not statistically significant. So when people ask me, you know, does lower levels of oxygen, I have cancer and I want to use soft chamber. I have to say that there's no effect. We didn't see an effect. Uh, there was trends, but it was not statistically significant with the... Really? It was not, you know, with uh, like eight animals or 10 animals or something like that. So I had a hunch that if I was to get more funding and then we could boost the animals to, you know, 20 or 30 animals per group that we would get the power to get statistical significance. But when people ask me if lower levels of oxygen would work, I, I have to say, well, we didn't show an effect, you know, mm. statistically sig significant effect. So, uh, so I advocate for using a higher level of oxygen, two uh, atmospheres, two atmospheres, unless, you know, if someone has like a, uh, cancer in the lung or, or maybe if they have a brain cancer, then you could be more susceptible to oxygen toxicity seizures. So it's good to start low, mm -hmm. you know, good to, and do a couple sessions low and then work up. Mm -hmm. So the great thing about hyperbaric oxygen therapy is unlike standard care therapy, like chemo and radiation, you come out of the other side with, with standard of care, you come out of the other side, like a broken individual. Right. I mean, your you system shock. Yeah. Your whole body. It is. It's like uh, patients say it's like they got ran over by a truck. They ran a marathon. And then a truck ran them over at the end. I mean, they are really in bad shape. Whereas with hyperbaric oxygen, it's like actually <laughs> enhancing your own body's resilience. Like it's improving stem cells. It's like augmenting, um, you know, uh, your immune system in ways to reduce inflammation. You know, it's improving your overall health. Uh, that can't be said for any standard of care chemo immune or radiation protocol. Everything's, right. you know it's just going to bang you up. So we are very motivated to develop a comprehensive, non-toxic metabolic approach to treating cancer. So that includes like nutrition and, you know, hyperbaric oxygen, of course, uh, supplementation, but also exercise. We have not done a whole lot with exercise, but we notice um, that exercise can move metabolic markers in the direction that would improve outcomes. So we're going to set up experiments to do exercise. What about uh, like anti-aging and longevity? Like what, yeah. what sort of effects can, like for example, my friend who just bought this oxygen tank, he wants to use it like an hour a day and, mm -hmm. and every other day he has these people come to his house and give him, I think like 500 milligrams of NAD. And he yeah. also takes tons of supplements. I mean, every other day, 500 milligrams of NAD. Plus he wants to do the, the hyperbaric oxygen and all this stuff. Like what, sort of studies have you seen it's just like as far as like maintaining a healthy active lifestyle for like athletes using this kind of stuff how does that how does that benefit even for even yeah. for like lifting and and exercise and stuff like that yeah i i probably get a couple emails every week not every day at one point it was like every day about the longevity effects because um, the israelis published studies showing that you can increase your telomeres Right. Mm -hmm. So which right. is a marker for for longevity and aging. Uh, so there was quite a bit of work done, as I mentioned, when you're exposed to hyperbaric oxygen, it augments your endogenous antioxidant system. So that includes like enzymes like glutathione, superoxide dismutase. These are things that your body produces to protect you from the environment, from oxidative stress uh, and oxidative stress basically causes us to age so like rust oxidizes so it mm -hmm. ages so our bodies oxidize from the inside out 
uh, hyperbaric oxygen may be a way to delay that, but I'm skeptical of it. Uh, the NAD question is like an interesting one. So I have been using a supplement that's uh, uh, NMN and and also resveratrol. So is that the Verso me. stuff? Yeah, Verso. I got some of that too. Oh, do you? Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I know I know the owners of the company very well. I was actually. Um, I will, I guess I could say this. I served on federal study sections and everything where we evaluated the effects of, uh, of NMN, uh, nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide. So, and, and I was always very skeptical and gave like a lukewarm review to many of these, uh, grants that were, that were, because I was not convinced that. Uh, you could take it orally and that it would end up in the cells of the brain, that the, the gut would essentially render it inactive. So your friend, I think, mentioned you did an uh, NAD drip, right? Yeah, uh, he does IV. them yeah. every other day. Yeah, 500 milligrams. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty – that'll get it done, 500 milligrams. So that will probably get into cells. So that's probably offering a benefit. Uh, but I am convinced that the Verso product – for one thing. And, you know, we're just friends with them, no, no affiliation or anything. So that's a product that I use that if, when I bumped up the dose to doubling the recommended dose, which, and then I, I had a stint with COVID and I actually bumped it up to 12 capsules a day. And I think 12 I 12 capsules of that stuff. 12 capsules. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> so, but I'm convinced that I bounced back really fast once I started to do that because I had not been taking it actually and we could talk about COVID a little bit but I had, yeah. I had we were traveling and you're supposed to keep it refrigerated and I didn't bring it with me and then we got back from traveling and then my wife and I came down with COVID and I noticed uh at when it peaked when my when my fever was highest then I started taking it and then I started improving pretty pretty rapidly after that um, but I've talked to enough people to convince me that a large dose of uh, NMN, the Versa product or other products, although I think Versa is probably superior to most out there. Um, and then the IV, I've talked to quite a few people who are getting uh, NAD drips uh, and they're saying, claiming, you know, it's it's pretty effective as far as increasing their energy. And it's a subtle increase in energy. It's not like a caffeine hit or anything. And I noticed it when I was tracking my exercise activity in particular. I swim pretty much every day, and it gave me a second wind in swimming when I bumped up the dose, to which was like double what they're recommending on the bottle. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't notice anything. But my wife noticed something, which was curious to me because she never notices anything, anything she does. So she was telling <laughs> Telling me that it that it works, and she stopped taking it, and then she felt a decrease. Like she went back to normal, then she started taking it again. And this is my wife doesn't BS anything, so it's like so I, I got a little bit curious. So then I took it and didn't really notice anything, but then I doubled the dose, and uh, I I'm obsessively track everything. So I track my laps and how I feel subjectively and objectively. You know, I time myself and, and how I feel subjectively too. And then I definitely noticed after two or three days of doubling the dose that I got like the second wind. And that was very interesting to me. Uh, during that, the exercise. During the exercise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't notice it lifting weights. Didn't make me stronger or anything. But mm-hmm. I noticed uh, during aerobic physical activity in the context of pushing my body. Uh, harder. So once once the activity starting started to get hard, when I usually give up or fail or have a performance decrement, that's when it was like working. Mm-hmm. That's when I subjectively felt it it was working. And then that actually 
aligns really well with a number of people that I'm communicating with, athletes and scientists, and, and actually the data too. When you, you know, push uh, mice or rats to a certain point, it gives them that extra little boost. And the same thing I could say with like exogenous ketones. Like I take exogenous ketones during the day. It gives me a little like nootropic boost. I have more, you know, brain energy. Uh, and I don't really recognize the benefits when I'm lifting weights, although it may help with the recovery and adaptive processes. When I put myself in a situation uh, aerobically, if I'm, you know, pushing beyond that typical limit, that's when I notice that, mm. you know, two, three, maybe 4% boost. I know um, you were talking about how you fasted for seven days and you deadlifted like an insane amount of weight. I talked. I told you last time. I, after I did a uh, the first time I did a, a five to six day fast, on the fifth day I was able to do pull ups, yeah. like three times the amount of pull ups I'd normally am allowed to do. Like my body lets me do. Yeah. With with very 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 little, um, work. Like it it wasn't nearly as hard as it normally is, which yeah. is very strange. And then also I played basketball for two hours and I didn't have the fatigue or like the the side stitch cramp that you get when you're you know yeah. overexerting yourself like yeah just that alone was enough to convince me that you know whatever whatever it was that I was getting from that extended fast whether it be the ketones I thought it, I thought it must have been the ketones you know my mm -hmm. my the fuel yeah. not was not glycogen um you know that's what convinced which that's what introduced me to you. Mm -hmm. That's what it convinced me to try the ketogenic diet and then eventually low carbs. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, since then, I haven't been able to maintain a strict ketogenic diet. I've cut mm -hmm. out a lot of carbs in my life. Yeah. I used to eat pasta probably two days a week. Now mm -hmm. I haven't eaten. I, I don't eat. I just replaced that with like yeah. high fat, yep. low carb meals. Yep. Um, I don't know. Is there, do you think there's a benefit to if somebody is not necessarily following a strict ketogenic diet, ketogenic diet every day, mm -hmm. say somebody eats a couple of plates of pasta a week, mm -hmm. um, replacing those couple of plates of pasta every week over a period of a couple of years with a high fat, low carb meal. So that's not going to necessarily, necessarily put them in ketosis, but it's going to cut out the amount of carbs they're consuming over a long period of time. Do you think there's any benefits to that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a spectrum, right? right. So um, your metabolism is a spectrum, and the output would be your respiratory quotient, which is, uh, you know, your O2 consumption, CO2 production. Uh, you know, it comes out as an equation mm -hmm. in expired air. So as we reduce carbohydrates and when we reduce sugar and we add more fat in, we start to oxidize more fat. Our bodies are, we're omnivores. We are great in that we burn what we feed our bodies. And if we, we can adapt our metabolism over time to be more metabolically flexible, which means, and we should do this, we should eat, we should vary our macronutrient you know, ratios and things like that. Uh, but if we simply titrate the carbohydrates down, Typical U.S. carbohydrate consumption anywhere from two, three hundred, maybe athletes four hundred grams of carbs a day. If we back that down to like you know maybe start two hundred, then go one hundred, and then drop it, then we're shifting our metabolism to burn more fat and less glucose, right? And uh, and when in regards to low carbon ketogenic diets, the more you do it, the easier it gets, and the more benefits you derive from it because you're getting more adaptive effects from it. So 
a, a scenario would be that if you go on a ketogenic diet and follow it for a couple of months, uh, or we did this with rats where we put them on a ketogenic diet and then we take them off the ketogenic diet and put them back on the ketogenic diet again, they make ketones much faster once we switch back mm. to a ketogenic diet. So we call that a metabolic switch. You can hop in and out quickly. Yeah. So this metabolic switch, uh, we noticed though that older rats don't have that robust metabolic switch as much, but if we do uh, intermittent fasting is a way to increase that. So there are different approaches you could take to get your body. I think, you know, your listeners really want to be more fat adapted, like coax your body into burning more fat, either dietary fat or fat on their body, uh, you know, obviously. So one way to do that would be to simply restrict the carbohydrates. It does not need to be ketogenic. You don't have to like be in a state of super low glucose, low insulin to be making ketones. So that, that has benefits and can be therapeutic for many different things, right? But it doesn't, uh, you could be burning your body fat at a much higher rate just by reducing carbohydrates from, and it's relatively speaking, right? So if you're eating 200 grams of carbs and you just drop it down to like 50 to 100 grams of carbs, you're going to be burning like twice as much fat like literally. So your body is going to tap into its fat reserves mm -hmm. and uh, your dietary fat will be higher too if you shift. You know, if you drop carbs, you got to replace it with something. You could do it with protein and, and fat. So the more we do that, there's adaptive processes that happen in our liver at the level of the muscle and even our brain. We start transporting ketones across the blood-brain barrier and then our brain starts using ketones for fuel. And not only using ketones for fuel, but the brain adapts to using lower levels of glucose, which means, um, and you see this with people with, with diabetes, right? So if someone's like diabetic and they wear a continuous glucose monitor and their glucose level is like a, stays at 150 and then through a dietary intervention or even like a drug intervention, you drop that down to like 90, that's still relatively high glucose. That should be a lot, but the relative changes that they will perceive that as hypoglycemia because their brain is used to 150 milligrams per deciliter of glucose, right? But when you go on a ketogenic diet or you do intermittent fasting, that trains your brain, for lack of a better term, I could talk mechanistically what's going on, but the brain adapts to using, to being comfortable at a lower level of glucose. So I've been in situations where I'm fasting or on a ketogenic diet, or even if I take exogenous ketones, that tends to lower my glucose too, where my glucose is like 52, sometimes you know as low as 48. And that's when I feel most lucid and have the most brain energy. Right. Because... There's various transporters associated with getting glucose across membranes, and that could be the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and then you have the cellular membrane, which is the membrane on the neuron, you know, getting it across there. And there's a variety of different transporters with ketones. It's called the monocarboxylic acid transporter. And these things get upregulated, which means like you have a neuron and it's got like 100, 100 little transporters, but you go on a ketogenic diet or start fasting and then it ramps up production of these proteins, which are your transporters are protein. They get embedded in the membranes and then it allows your body to transport more of this energy across the membrane and then even into the mitochondria where there's also transporters. So this adaptive process does not happen overnight, but the more you adhere to intermittent fasting protocols, carbohydrate restriction or ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. then you upregulate uh, 
ketogenesis enzymes, which are enzymes that make ketones. Mm -hmm. So you're making more of this alternative fuel. Mm -hmm. You are augmenting the production of ketolytic enzymes, which are enzymes within the mitochondria in the cell that actually allow us to generate energy from ketones. And then you're also increasing the production of the transporters. So you have, so we can get more of this fuel across. Uh, so there's a lot of adaptive things. And you talked about, you know, when you're fasting, you did more chin-ups and everything. I think a lot of, a lot of things are going on there in that you basically, uh, you're relieving your body of the burden of digestion, right? <laughs> Digesting, right. Yeah, and, you know, your organs there, that actually uses a lot of energy. So when you're fasting, you know, all that extra energy and blood can actually go to your muscles and go to your brain. And when we fast, uh, about 24 to 36 hours into fasting, we have about a 30% increase in brain blood flow. And this is kind of like a mystery, but people are studying this. And I think it has to be attributed to then your gastrointestinal system, your liver, your kidneys, your organs take up a massive amount of energy and blood. And then because you're not digesting food or anything, that, that frees up a lot of it. Your liver actually shrinks. You know, you have less glycogen and less metabolic activity in the liver. So you have more blood in circulation available to, to your muscles. And the inflammatory state of your body goes down. So your inflammatory markers, your cytokines and your chemokines go down. And when that happens, the, the skeletal muscle, the actual contractile apparatus of the skeletal muscle, the calcium signaling, even at the level of the sarcoplasmic you know, reticulum and the neuromuscular junction, you have a better, uh, a better activation of muscle contraction from the brain to the motor neurons to the neuromuscular junction to the release of calcium in there so you have a stronger more efficient contraction when your body is in the state of Mm. uh, lower inflammation you know you reduce the burden of having to digest food and and then you have ketones too that are in the mix so your body becomes a more efficient machine so this probably you know, your, your strength will probably go up in like pulling exercises, maybe in deadlifts, but probably not things like bench press or, you know, which, uh, certain exercises you have the advantage of maybe holding extra weight because you simply have, if you expand the cells, you know, with like creatine and carbs and you're holding extra glycogen, then you essentially have more cellular leverage to move more weight. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so for example, my, nutrition fasting regimens are different depending on like what type of workout i'm going into you know so that's that needs to be taken into account yeah that's another thing i wanted to ask you about obviously you know you i'm sure you spend a lot of time during your day sitting at a computer doing research way too much i do the same thing 12 hours a day so it when i try my hardest i can go on i could go on a month long stint of being pretty damn close to being in ketosis but um there's some it's so hard i have so many like questions i'm trying to like form it into keep it organized um when what is your specific regimen when it comes to like your everyday i know you have different workout routines that you're going into but for someone like you you're a big guy you work out a lot but you also spend a lot of time sitting down like what and and, and sitting at a desk working not being not being active it's different for people like you or people like myself um, than it is for somebody who works like construction. 
or his, yeah. is on their feet running around all day. Um, for someone who sp- spends a lot of time at the desk, like what is your regimen, for example? Like what, like how often do you typically eat? What does that look like? And then what type of supplements are you taking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all good question. Well, I, uh, I think sitting it can be like really toxic if yeah. you're sitting all day. So I actually built a stand-up desk at home. I've been um, working a lot at home with COVID, but I also teach. And, you know, like last week I had to teach all week and I'm, uh, I'm standing behind a podium. So mm. that's better than, you know, sitting yeah. at my desk. Um, and, and my students actually bought me a stand-up desk for oh, my office. Nice. So, uh, yeah. So that when I got tenure, they, they bought me that. So it was a kind gift to them. Um, so I, I do probably more than 80% of the time, if I am at the desk, I'm standing and, uh, and moving around. And from conference calls, like I walk around and do that. Um, so depending, my nutrition will vary depending upon if I want to lose weight, maintain weight, or gain weight, right? And also varies depending upon my routine. I'm talking just my routine will depend upon uh, the type of workout that I'm doing too. Uh, Last week, I guess for an example, uh, I hosted uh, Thomas DeLauer. He's got a mm-hmm. massive YouTube page. Check him out. It's like 3 million followers. And I knew he was coming, and I knew he was going to. My typical routine is, you know, through – in academia, you just you, you have very long hours. So, you know, even when I was a PhD student, it was like get in there, lift really – warm up, lift really heavy, and get, and get out. And then I was able to build a lot of muscle just doing that and a lot of strength and size. Uh, Dorian Yates and Mike Menser popularized an approach called the heavy duty approach. And it was just like, I, I followed them and would learn to warm up and do two or three major compound movements and maybe one or two accessory movements sets really and be out. So I still revert back to that today. Uh, although last week was really challenging and it was really pushing me. Uh, I do a lot of work outside. We have a farm, so I'm always, you know, moving hay bales and shoveling poop and just, you know, cutting logs and stuff like that. So that has kept me in shape. And You're a real man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy that. And that's part of, like, my routine, actually. And so yesterday I spent a good time fixing fences and cutting logs and everything. That's awesome. So, yeah, last last week was kind of fun because uh, I was put through a workout that I typically don't. It was like maybe an hour and a half of training, and we did a wide variety of high volume uh, from weighted dips to chins, and then we did shoulder exercises and all these accessory movements I typically don't do. And it was like freezing cold, but Thomas DeLauer is like an animal. He had like no sleep. He came in, slept three hours, but he does intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets. And he's a pretty big dude, like pretty heavily muscled. And then we did our workout, which went well. I was able to keep up with him and uh, even deadlifts, you know, uh, you know, I'm pretty strong on that exercise. But we went from that to uh, training outside where I had a thousand pound hay bale. And the idea was to roll it across the farm, across the cow bridge onto the other property. So we had, we took turns rolling this thing across the pasture and, uh, and that, that it's like pushing the sled, but even harder because, you know, it's wet. It's like, you know, this thing, it's hard to push up hills. I mean, it totally spent, you know, totally drained every amount of ATP I had and, um, I really felt in that context, and we talked about it after, and we actually, you know, developed some interview content around this idea 
of that would have been a good scenario or a good point in time to add carbohydrates because mm. I typically don't train that way. If I was ketogenic, I could probably train my body to do an hour, an hour, half workout. But because my workouts are usually 30 minutes, if I extend it to an hour, an hour and a half, not having carbohydrates would be detrimental, I think. But I feel like I could get a sufficient amount of stimulus within a 30-minute workout to grow muscle and to grow strength. And just going beyond that is just like a waste of time because I'm not like a professional athlete or anything like that. Although if I was going to be you know, a bodybuilder, a competitive powerlifter, a football player, I would be doing two or three hour workouts and I would probably introduce some carbohydrates in and around my workout, but not much. A little bit goes a long way. But, you know, and I would probably add them intra-workout about halfway through. So, but for me, I really, I probably spend about an like hour carbohydrate supplements? Yeah, like a little bit of, uh, you know, simple sugars in the form of glucose polymers mm -hmm. or, you know, I will... Uh, I actually just have like dark chocolate. I'll have some dark chocolate if I want a little bit of carbs. And sometimes I get into routines where like I just, I'm cutting, I'm just like moving logs all day. And just like, it's like eight hours of deadlifting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm doing uh, some fence work or something like that and just doing a lot of heavy farm work and then I will titrate some carbs in and I feel it. I mean, uh, but I like to keep my body hungry for carbs and in the process of doing that, you're adapting your physiology to be able to perform and, and preserve that performance in a low carb state. And I think there's a lot of advantages to that. So your glucose is low, your insulin is low, and that allows you to tap into your fat reserves more efficiently. So we have an endless amount of fat. Even a lean person has, you know, 20 to 30,000 calories of fat on their body, even a lean person. So we can uh, always tap into that. Whereas, you know, if we cut carbs completely out within like 24, 36 hours, we're going to deplete our liver glycogen. But if we are fat adapted and we are, we have good metabolic flexibility, that means that, uh, and a good way to assess this is if you stop eating and you fast and if the fast is extremely painful and you get a headache and you just can't perform, then you're not fat adapted. So one way to get your body more fat adapted is simply the first way to do it is to simply eat within a 12 hour window and fast in 12 hours. So start there and then you can push it to like a 16 hour fast and eight hours of eating. Some people go to like 20 hours of fasting, four hours of eating. Mm -hmm. If I did that, I would lose way too much uh, weight and size and strength. So what I do personally is just, I do intermittent fasting, a 16, eight protocol just twice a week, if that. And okay. that's actually enough. So 16 hours of not eating. 16 hours fasting, 16 hours of just, you know, skipping breakfast. Uh, like last week, I may like lecture twice. It's like I would just, I would uh, finish my, my lectures for the day around two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And then that would be my first meal. So, okay. and sometimes, you know, during the day I might have some ketone supplements or I might have uh, like black coffee or something like that. Yeah. And sometimes I put MCT in it. Sometimes I don't. But basically, the most important thing is to keep insulin and glucose low, and that pushes your body to be more fat adapted. Mm. And when we get fat adapted and we go in a situation, if we don't have any carbs or if we go into a fasting situation, the body is completely immune to the energy crisis. So your body knows what to do, quickly right. liberates fat for fuel. 
And I think a lot of things are going on there. It's like you're increasing something called glucagon. You're stimulating your sympathetic nervous system, your catecholamines. And that's basically hits a hormone called um, hormone sensitive lipase. And then so basically it just like it opens the floodgates for fat to go out of your cell and to be used as energy. And some of that fat goes to the liver and through ketogenesis, uh, you know, generates ketones. And then mm. ketones can largely replace glucose as an energy source, which you were experiencing mm -hmm. when you were fasting for five to seven days. Yeah. You did. Yeah. So I did. I quit on the sixth day. I wanted to go seven, but I couldn't. I just, yeah. Well, at that point in time, like the majority of your brain energy was coming from ketones. Like right. if you fasted that, that long. Um, so it doesn't, it, it takes a while to get to that for me. At, so, and, and we calculate this through something called the glucose ketone index. So you can measure glucose and, in milligrams per deciliter or millimolar. So mm -hmm. in millimolar, we're about like four to five millimolar is mm -hmm. normal. But when you fast, you don't go to zero because we always produce glucose through gluconeogenic amino acids and the glycerol backbone of triglycerides becomes glu uh, glucose and everything. So our glucose goes down but stays like low and stable at about three millimolar. And after about three days of fasting, uh, on the first day, if you're eating a standard diet, your, your ketones are like zero, right? So, but after about three days of fasting, you're up to about three millimolar ketones. So we call that a glucose ketone uh, index of one, right? So the level of glucose in your blood is fairly equivalent to the level of ketone in your blood. And your brain will use whatever fuels available. So you have the transporters for both. So you're using about 50% glucose and 50% ketones. At, at about, three millimolars. Uh, uh, at three millimolars. That's for me and for, I've tracked many different people, uh, especially athletes at about the third day, they have a glucose ketone index of about one, which means you get, your brain's like a hybrid engine. You know, it can mm -hmm. use glucose or ketones or it could use both, right? So... In that particular state, uh, is very therapeutic. So a glucose ketone index of one is tremendously neuroprotective. It's tremendously anti-seizure. Uh, you know, organizations like Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic, when when they have kids that come in and put them on a ketogenic diet, if they can get their glucose ketone index to one, then that has remarkable seizure control above and beyond any anti-convulsant that we know mm -hmm. of, you know, that that's really amazing to me. And that's what actually motivated me to like spend my career studying this. Uh, but when you were experiencing it, you probably felt lighter. You probably felt everything was kind of like smooth, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, I was, yeah. my mental acuity, my, sh I was so much sharper when I was thinking and talking yeah. and I, I could do things like this so much better. Like yeah. I, no, no fatigue, no mental fatigue at all. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I typically like this morning I had steak and eggs for breakfast, but uh, because I was like so active over the weekend, it was just like my energy levels were down. Uh, but typically, so as I'm transitioning more throughout the day into a more fasted state, I can feel my body and my brain becoming more awake. Mm -hmm. So uh, so typically, uh, my normal day is kind of like you know I don't do intermittent fasting every day. I'll eat a small keto breakfast and then fast throughout the day and then have a pretty large meal. And then maybe some activity and then like a snack at night. That's what I typically do. Sometimes I'll eat those keto bricks. Oh, like, yeah. Like a little yeah. bit of those keto bricks. I know with Robert. Just yeah, the coffee. Well. I don't know. I, yep. Everything I eat that's keto is just from your Instagram page. So I, oh, I, yeah. I just copy pretty yeah. much everything I see you do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Shout out to uh, Robert at Keto Brick. It's, it's like one of the – so 
a lot of people send me keto supplements and keto products and maybe only 10, not even 20%, maybe 10% like actually are truly keto. So mm -hmm. a keto brick is something that is like, it's a thousand calorie brick that is, uh, has the macronutrient ratios that are truly keto, which means okay. you eat it and then you are truly sustaining the being in keto. Like you could use it clinically. Like the product could be used like in a clinical setting to, oh, wow. to manage. Like it's that, it's that legit. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it fills you up. It, yeah, feel, it fills yeah. you up. I only, I can only eat like a quarter of one maybe at most at, at one yep. sitting with coffee. They're perfect for like backpacking, like hikers, like yeah. hunting, something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I eat a couple a week. Do you? I got to reorder them actually. Yeah. Um, it's hard. The hardest thing, the hardest thing for me as far as like maintaining this new this nutritional state is i can fast all day long I, I often i'll go a couple times a, maybe one time a month i'll do a 24 hours and then i'll i'll spend a couple days like strict keto but other than that like when i'm just like coasting um i'll i can easily i i intermittent fast most days of monday through friday i try to do that at least mm -hmm. but then when i get home i'll eat chips or i'll eat a cookie is it true mm -hmm. that that's that's can be worse if you're in a, in a ketogenic state from either fasting or from diet and then you, mm. you splurge and eat some chips and cookies. Is that worse than just eating, just keeping a carbs in your diet throughout the day? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking at you looking at like your metabolic phenotype, you're probably digesting and assimilating that the only way I, I'm, I'm kind of against, you know, processed food in general. I try to eliminate it. Although, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, my wife is pretty liberal in whatever she eats. I mean, you know, my wife's the same way. Could, yeah. Cookies, candies, things like that. And she can maintain her blood glucose and insulin and within a pretty tight parameters, right? So the majority of people can't majority of people have hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance and, you know, they don't, they should not be eating these things. It's adding more kind of fuel to the fire. These are hyper palatable foods that reinforce uh, a dopaminergic pathway, among other things associated with the control of eating behavior, which is very complex. Uh, so it's reinforcing eating. The, the more you eat the food, it's reinforcing that eating behavior of that, that, that kind of food that's mm -hmm. hyper palatable, typically high, high fat, high carb, high fat, high sugar or high, um, high salt content too. Mm -hmm. So for you, I mean, you may need the calories to maintain it. And for me at the end of the day, sometimes I have to have like a cup or two cups of sour cream and I put some protein powder in it and some stevia or whatever, just to, just sour just cream? to get my calorie. Need. Yeah. I'll do <laughs> sour cream, uh, some wild blueberries and, uh, <clears throat> cause it's kind of like yogurt. stevia and, and dark, yeah. uh, dark chocolate, uh, powder. And just to get my calories, because I was so busy during the day, I just didn't, mm -hmm. you know, have my calorie needs. I'll, I'll lose weight. But um, but I think I, the only way to really know if this is harming your body is to do blood work. And so I'm wearing, I talked about a continuous glucose monitor. Right. I have a Dexcom G6 on the back. And sometimes I use the Abbott Precision uh, or the Abbott uh, Libre device. And I use that with an app called Levels Health. And Levels Health app um, is really a tool that we are using in a registered clinical trial as a behavioral tool to more or less prevent what you just told me you're doing, which is like kind of going throughout the day 
if I go go throughout the day, by the end of the day, I'm more hungry than if I had eaten a meal earlier in the day. Right. Or if I, so that's kind of why I've... Uh, I, I realized that intermittent fasting was leading to more erratic eating behavior at night. And I am like, I get the munchies at night. So simply eating a well-formulated ketogenic meal earlier in the day knocks my appetite down by like 30%. It doesn't go away, but I definitely uh, am less ravenous at Mm. nighttime. And being low carb and being keto actually helps with controlling your appetite. So your appetite's not, not controlling you. But... What what it allows me to do is that, you know, I can look at uh, my phone's kind of off right now, but I could just show you. uh, Oh, I need to access. I don't want to turn on because it'll it'll blow up or whatever. But I can. Mm -hmm. Oh, you probably see my Instagram where I show, um, you know, my glycemic response. Right. Yeah, I have seen that response in response to uh, a pop tart versus a tasty pastry which is made by legendary foods which is like tastes just as good or better than a pop tart right they have like different variety like blueberry and cinnamon and, and dutch and then they have and i'll eat a regular pop tart they are two different things that actually are just as enjoyable to eat but the pop tart actually shoots my glucose to like 220 milligrams per deciliter which is like a glycemic hit and these spikes in glucose can be pro-inflammatory. They can trigger an insulin response, quickly kick you out of ketosis and basically put you in the fat storing mode. Whereas if I, when I ate a tasty pastry, it was almost like a flat line on the continuous glucose monitor, which means Hmm. I don't have a big bolus of glucose hitting tasty pastry. Yeah. Tasty pastry by legendary foods. So, you know, if I, if I'm, if you have to say, if it point the finger towards me of eating one processed food, it would be tasty pastry, but it's in no way equivalent to a pop tart. And I think most importantly, from a metabolic physiology point of view, I mean, it's super friendly to your metabolism in regards to glycemic variability. So, uh, I, I advocate for if you can't understand something unless you monitor it, right? If you want to manage something, yeah, you have to, you have to measure if you, if you want to effectively manage something. So I'm a big advocate for people just knowing what your baseline is. So buy a glucose monitor. You can get it at any CVS, Walgreens, Walmart. Prick your finger. Measure your fasting blood glucose. If you're over like 126 and you measure that again and you're over it twice, you're type 2 diabetic. And many people are borderline pre-diabetic. So at the very least, get you know blood work like once a year, ideally three or four times a year. Um, and you know, you want to measure your insulin too, but glucose is like the most important biomarker for health. And one way to track glucose continuously without having to prick your finger all the time is actually to get a continuous glucose monitor. And does it like go in you? It, you, yeah, there's an applicator and you put it on the back part of your arm here. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, you could put it on your stomach and stuff too, but I like to be consistent and put it just on the, just the meaty part back of the tricep. Mm-hmm. And that's basically like a dashboard to your metabolic physiology, wow. your glucose, right? So you get this at CVS. Uh, so the continuous glucose monitors are prescription items that are primarily used for type one diabetics and also in type two diabetics. There's a company called levels health mm-hmm. that 
you uh, you sign up and you go through an online application process and fill out a quick form. It might take five to ten minutes, and uh, and then there's a third party that fulfills a prescription and then they just send you the kit to your house okay. and you get a couple couple of devices and you get a transmitter and uh, and then you have access to the app. So that's where like the technology comes in and that within the app, I, for example, I ate a tasty pastry and then I ate a pop tart and then I had on two different days and I had a very informative glycemic trace over the course of several hours and actually gives you a metabolic score. And then I can go into the app and then do compare. And I could just go the day before. Basically, I take a picture of it and I write tasty pastry. And I take a picture of the Pop-Tart and just write Pop-Tart, you know, the next day. And I go into the app and I put compare these two. And it shows me, uh, it overlays the glycemic response from Pop-Tart and the metabolic score, the rate of rise, you know, the peak rate and, it, and it, the area under the curve and all that stuff is calculated uh, and it compares that the tasty pastry to the pop tart and it shows, you know, you have two dramatic, uh, two, a very dramatic difference wow. <laughs> between, you know, uh, two things that are just as enjoyable to eating, <laughs> but two different metabolic responses. So I'm a big advocate for measuring glycemic responses to food because I thought, I thought, you know, whole grained oats, oatmeal would have a nice flat response, but it shot me to like 200. And I thought, wow. yeah, I thought like, you know, eating uh, an orange would, would not be too, if I ate a large orange, it would shoot me up almost 50, 60 points. So even blueberries, if I eat blueberries without protein and fat, I get like a, probably a 20, 30 milligram uh, per deciliter spike. So I, I learned I learned a lot of things using a continuous glucose monitor. One is that if I eat fiber before a meal, fat or fiber before eating a carbohydrate or a large amount of protein, that fiber and fat will, so eating a salad with like a lot of olive oil and a mixed greens, and then I eat uh, a steak or a lot of protein after that, the protein could spike me up a little bit. Or even if I eat carbohydrates, eating that fat and fiber first will block that glycemic response. Mm. So uh, not only like the the peak glycemic response, but meaning the area under the curve. So uh, which means the total glycemic load is reduced simply by eating fiber. So what that tells me is that I have an appropriate insulin response and the insulin is doing its job more efficiently and taking that glucose and putting it into the muscle or okay. into the liver or wherever <laughs> it needs to be. Whereas if I was to drink, you know, 24 ounces of Gatorade, that glucose is hitting the system and the body is going to dump a massive amount of insulin. And typically what's going to happen is that, you know, the insulin gets released. It's going to stimulate de novo lipogenesis. You're going to like, you know, uh, glucose transporters will be overwhelmed. So you're going to get a big spike up and then you're going to get this postprandial dip in your glucose where you're going to be super hungry and ravenous you know, after the insulin gets, you're going to get, right. it's going to spike up, you're going to dump insulin, insulin gets released, and then you're going to get super hungry. And this is the vicious cycle the majority of population is on right now. So right. they're eating carbohydrates, they're eating chips, they're eating things between meals, and they spike their glucose up. And then two or three hours later, they get a postprandial dip. And then the brain senses uh, hypoglycemia, 
And that hypoglycemia is a trigger for you to go eat more carbohydrates and get right. your glucose up. And a lot of people don't know that and they would not know that because they're not using continuous glucose monitor. So, I mean, I've been wearing it for years and it's not something you necessarily have to wear for years, but if you just wear it for four weeks, it is so insightful and full of actionable information. You can change your dietary patterns to really optimize your glycemia throughout the day. And that will give you so much more energy. It'll give you, you can perform better. You can recover better mm -hmm. from exercise. You can think better. So it's a very cost-effective tool. It might be a little bit pricey to buy up front, but you know, you can, you know, it's like two or $300, I mm -hmm. think. But, uh, but you just, I think if you just use it for four weeks that you get so much information out of that, that it's actually pretty cheap. Yeah, so so don't fast all day and come home and eat a giant bowl of Captain Crunch. No, no, <laughs> yeah, I did. There's like there's Catalina Crunch, uh, which is one. I've of the tried some of those I keto tested. cereals. They're actually not bad. Yeah, so I, I think it was I, Magic Spoon. I tried maybe. I tried my yep. I that that tested okay. So I, I tested a lot of things. So I wear a continuous glucose monitor to vet out what's truly low carb and okay. what's keto. And Magic Spoon was like pretty okay. It was surprisingly, although it's got like chicory root and inulin in it, and that gave mm -hmm. me gas. But uh, mm -hmm. but and then uh, Catalina Crunch, uh, it's like two thumbs up on the taste, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but if I eat it dry out of the box, it was definitely shooting my glucose up not w way less than like captain crunch mm. but uh but when i i used uh, like a high fat almond milk or coconut milk or if i put it in sour cream and put cinnamon and ate it as a snack then it there was like no spike so just mm. you know coupling that with with like, fats with fats yeah it didn't spike me one of the interesting things which i emailed you about was uh when i did uh, I, I believe it was last Jan about a, almost a year ago today. I did a uh, a five day fast. At the very end of the five day fast, I did a, I took I did a blood test on myself. Huh. Came back, my LDLs were through the roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I sent you <laughs> some screenshots of it, and oh, you said yeah, there was a you you sent me something back where it said that a lot of um, athletic or active people who are on ketogenic diets see that rate that heightened cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and there's a term that has been developed for that called lean mass hyper responders. Okay, so yeah. uh, a lot of elite level athletes that are uh, and they don't even have to be elite level that are following a low carb approach and getting their bodies to basically run off fat and ketones. Uh, <clears throat> when we look at their lipid profile uh, and I forget what your triglycerides were, but in, in the typical I didn't get, they didn't test my trigly triglycerides. I have yeah. it right here. Well, typically what we see, you know, with athletic folks that are following uh, more of a high fat dietary pattern is that their triglycerides will. Oh, was that ZRT? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, your HSCRP is low. Insulin's low. Hemoglobin A1C is, is very low. Uh, HDL. I don't know H what any of those mean. Uh, your high density lipoprotein is a little low. Uh, 33 is kind of low, uh, relatively speaking. Um, I like to keep, I like to have my HDL, you know, in the 60 range, but your hemoglobin A1C is low, your HSCRP, which is your inflammatory marker, 
is 0.1. I mean, it's probably fasted. Yeah, right? you can't get much better than that. And then your insulin's yeah, 3.9. So that's 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 pretty good. Uh, the other ones are kind of cut off, but uh, I don't see your LDL here. Oh wait, let me see. One. Yeah, it wasn't. So it didn't have LDL, maybe, but it had. Um, what is the HSCRP? That's high sensitivity C reactive protein, and it's a uh, it's a marker. Uh, I like it. Some people, some people, I think it's very good marker of systemic inflammation. And, um, I basically see that people with high HSCRP Mm -hmm. really have, you know, uh, bad metabolic health. And as their metabolic health improves, H high sensitivity C reactive protein goes down. So systemic inflammation goes down over time. And that's, uh, also people who have, HSCRP, if it's high, you're more likely to get cancer. You're more likely to get, if it's you high. know, okay. yeah, if, uh, people who have cancer, I tend to see high HSCRP. So uh, it, it's super good and important to have low levels of systemic inflammation. And that's that was very indicative of what you just showed me. So that so even so if you have those numbers and your LDL is high, my personal opinion, is I would not be too concerned with that. Mm-hmm. So your is LD- LDL really bad? Is, is that like a, I heard that that some people claim that that's a myth that LDL is really not bad. Uh, it's very complicated and it's a nuanced discussion that's <laughs> right. above and beyond here. But my uh, my short answer is that if your if your glycemia levels are good, uh, insulin levels good, inflammation's down. Uh, ideally, you want your uh, your HDL a little bit higher than that, but right. it's still kind of okay. And your triglycerides are low too. Having a high HDL, I would not be concerned, especially you know if your blood pressure is good and you're healthy. So we do not know what an elevated LDL means in the context of a low-carb diet or in the context of this extended fast. So I don't think my – every doctor will tell you that's bad and right. you need to do something about it and you should probably be on a statin. But <laughs> we, the science has not – the science has not uh, – doesn't have any data really – on what healthy LDL levels should be in the context of like a fast like you did or in the context of a protracted or extended like low carb diet. Like we just don't have that data yet. Right. Uh, but if your other, if your triglycerides were elevated and your HDL were, were elevated, I would be concerned. Uh, or if your hemoglobin A1C was like 6.5, but you were like 4.1, that's like super low. So what, what that tells me. Are those all the considered triglycerides? Uh, so no. your triglycerides were not your triglycerides. Your triglycerides should have been tested, but I didn't see them yeah. on there. Mm-mm. But but basically, just by looking at your insulin and your glucose and your other markers, what that tells me is that your body was in a very high fat oxidation state. Your glucose was low, and uh, in the context of an elevated fat metabolism you're going to need more lipoprotein you're going to need more and that's ldl is not cholesterol but it carries cholesterol so low density lipoprotein carries not only cholesterol it carries phospholipids it carries triglycerides it carries other fats so we need more of that protein uh when we are preferentially you know uh, using more fat for fuel because that's a uh, a transport system for fat for phospholipids for for other molecules. So we need more carrying molecules mm-hmm. in circulation. Uh, 
And yeah, if all your other biomarkers are okay, I would not be too concerned. Although to follow up, the only way to really get insight into that is to do what's called an NMR lipid profile, which basically measures like your LDLP, your 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 ApoB, your LP little a. You know, these are things. Again, kind of beyond the discussion here. But if that if your LDL is persistently elevated across a couple uh, blood draws, and and your triglycerides are a little bit high too, and your HDL is a little bit low. So mm-hmm. HDL high is good, HDL low is bad. Right. Uh, you may you may want to adjust your diet a little yeah, bit. That, I, which I've a, done. Yeah. So, but I wouldn't. I mean, those numbers are great, especially oh, yeah. like after a fast. I would expect that, and it's also it's also pretty similar to mine. I didn't see mm-hmm. what your other what your. I was trying to find it. It's taking me forever. Yeah, to do it. I yeah. got it on the laptop. Um. Going back to uh, going back, I want to talk about more about the uh, the NMN and what was the the Verso pro, the Verso product is NMN and resveratrol Re- resveratrol resveratrol yeah. which produces naturally NAD right. Uh, well, it hits the sirtuins, yeah, right, which is okay. kind of like uh, and PPAR. Uh, it, it, so essentially, what it does is it's it's elevating NAD. So as we age. My so I'm taking Verso, so my NAD levels may be a little bit higher. So if I was not taking a Verso product, my level of NAD would probably be half of what it was when I was like 17 or 18 years old. So as we age, we have a correspondingly progressive decrease uh, in NAD levels, which is sort of like this energy intermediate that's really important for cellular energy production you know uh signaling molecules so the nmn or nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide which is found in the the verso product with resveratrol is hitting uh cert1 receptor and associated pathways which is really helping the body the, the way I think about it is it's coupling mitochondrial activity and mitochondrial health uh, with the nucleus. So there's crosstalk between the mitochondria, which are the energy producing organelles of the cell, and the nucleus. And there's like this retrograde response where there's crosstalk. And essentially, uh, and there's a lot of activity that's driven by uh, NAD. Uh, cellular, you know, respiration. So, um, so the NAD supplement is sort of restoring the the cofactors necessary to make ATP. But I think about it mostly from a signaling perspective as coupling uh, the mitochondria to the nucleus and mm. producing an appropriate response in regards to uh, generating the bioelectric or the bioenergetic state of the cell. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the couple. And my criticism of NMN and NR was that when you take it orally, it's not getting into the cells. Uh, But I think the data is to the point now, especially if you take a large enough dose, that it is getting to the cells. And uh, the dosage that we need, the human studies really are not there yet. Uh, And I was a little bit hesitant taking it, although anecdotally if i take a large dose i do feel it and i've not taken iv nad yet but okay. the feedback from people that i respect are suggest that it's pretty effective 
Yeah. yeah uh, my, my friend who uh, I was telling you about who's been doing it every other day, he's, he's in his late fifties and he says he doesn't really notice much of a difference. But the first time I did it, I felt like, like I was, I could jump over the moon. Like I had yeah. like an insane energy boost that mm-hmm. I'm, I haven't, I've never experienced. Um, after that, so funny. Yeah. it wasn't so bad. One time yeah. I did it and I, I was, I felt like I was going to throw up for four hours afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know when you're doing it, it's extremely stressful and painful on your body. Like you feel like it's, you feel like you have the flu while you're doing it. But, yeah. but after, I think it was the third time I did it afterwards, I felt like I, I was sick for a couple hours, yeah. which was really weird. I didn't have the energy spike. Um, I don't know if that had yeah. to do with like the needle placement, if they messed up, you know, messed it up when they put the needle in my vein or what. But, um, was there anything else in the drip, like uh, ascorbic acid, like vitamin they, C? Uh, yeah, yeah, like a Myers Myers cocktail. cocktail yep. Oh, okay, they okay. did the NAD. Um, okay, so so you were experiencing that sort of like coldness that you feel and the cringe. Sometimes there's different uh, effects you may feel. Also, you have to acknowledge that ascorbic acid is a glucose antagonist. So, uh, which is vitamin C. So vitamin Mm -hmm. C and glucose use the same transporter. So when you get a big dose of vitamin C, a big dose IV would be anywhere from 20 grams. So, you know, some, some clinics use like a hundred grams of, of IV vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Your body goes into a most reactive hypoglycemia because the the same channel the, the the glucose transporters that transport glucose also transport vitamin C right. and you're you're blocking that and uh, so there's a ver- wide variety of effects you could feel depending upon if you went into it fasted or if you had a meal or mm-hmm. something and it probably had the pee like crazy too like right after oh the, yeah no yeah, the, yeah. the first time I did it, I did it fasted I felt uh-huh. great so that the time I got sick I ate an egg McMuffin before. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that could factor into that. Yeah. It's probably, you're probably dumping a lot of uh, insulin too. And maybe you had mm. like a, an effect after that. So very interesting. So I, I, I think there's good science emerging mm-hmm. from NAD. Uh, I'm of the opinion, let's try to increase NAD levels naturally and sustain right. it naturally. So ketogenic diets, there are some people in the field of basic science research and, clini- and clinical research that feel that the therapeutic effects of the ketogenic diet on the brain and on the body are due to a boost in NAD, NAD to NADH uh, ratio. So there's a whole field of people kind of studying that uh, fasting uh, will increase NAD levels and exercise increase NAD levels. So mm-hmm. if you do a low-carb ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting and exercise, you're basically doing like everything you could do to, to boost right. your NAD levels. So uh, I don't think you have to do the IV route. I think you can get the benefits and it's much easier, right, to take a supplement like Cheaper. Verso. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I, yeah. it's interesting that it helps you with COVID too. You know, I didn't expect, I think it was from like an energetic point of view. Like I came down, I had very mild symptoms for about two or three days. And then I got a fever of about 103.7. And I remember I was working all day during this, uh, having to do interviews and stuff with the school. And uh, although it was virtual, I wasn't like spreading my germs around. But uh, it was that day that I actually got back on with Diverso product again. And I was, I was mega dosing. I was taking 12 capsules. <laughs> And I, I turned the corner real quick. Like the next day I woke up, I like sprung out of bed. I was ready, you know, right at work. I was just like, I had a lot of energy, but I could tell, 
till still feel that my immune system was in a, uh, a hyper immune surveillance point of view. My glands were very swollen, but mm. throughout the course of the day, by the end of the day, uh, my glands had went down and I was just left with like, you know, this tickle in the back of back of your throat. Mm -hmm. So for me, I don't know what version I had. I suspect I might've had the Delta variant, but maybe I had the Omicron. It started as just like razor blades in my throat. And then, and then I had the fever right around that time or whatever, but it was really bad for two days and then just kind of lingered for a week or two after. Whereas my wife, we obviously got the same thing because it happened like the early symptoms started at the exact same time and we both had the same fever within mm -hmm. a for, you know, one or two, but her symptoms were muscle pain and bone pain. Hmm. And, uh, and actually her symptoms were a little bit less than mine, but, uh, but we both recovered pretty quick. Mm. Yeah. And you're vaccinated. Uh, <laughs> oh, you don't want to talk about that or, well, you know, I am, I am, because of the work I do and, you know, I, cho I chose to, to get vaccinated. Um, so I'll, I'll say that, but I am in touch with a number of people who I was within a circle, like a, a family circle and friends and everything. They all got the same variant that I got because we all got sick around the same oh, time. Oh, you guys were all together. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, my wife is part of this bigger group and it was kind of interesting in that it did not seem to make a difference vaccinated or not you know, between you and your wife, uh, her, her symptoms were less than yours. Yeah. Her symptoms were, well, I'm not going to say if she's vaccinated or not, but I'll say okay. that we were amongst her. She included a, a number of different people. And actually the people that were not vaccinated probably had little or no symptoms. A couple of them, you know, didn't get infected at all. We had a big family mm -hmm. get togethers and stuff and right. we traveled back right. and then got on the phone and it was like, realized everybody was sick. So I was, uh, got a head count of like, who's sick? What are their symptoms? And I went through everything. Yeah. And it, there was a couple people among family and friends that were unvaccinated and they didn't even get it, but all their family members got it. So I think the bottom line is that I don't think that the whole point of vaccines was to decrease the length of the, you know, the pandemic. And I don't think right. that happened. Right. I mean, just look at the scenario. Right. right. No, now you have to get your fourth, not. fifth one. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that, I, I don't think the, the protracted nature of the pandemic is due to the unvaccinated. I think we can reliably say that at this point in time. So, uh, but I mean, I think there is something to the idea, especially if you're older, uh, and metabolic health, if you have type 2 diabetes, if you're obese, if you're older, I'm all for getting vaccinated. Then it becomes questionable if you are younger, if you're kids, like should kids, you know, that's a whole nother. I don't even choose to weigh in on that because it's so polarized <laughs> that, you yeah. know, um, but I have my own opinions. But uh, I do feel that, you know, I encouraged, you know, my, my family members who are, you know, older in their 70s and 80s and stuff mm -hmm. that might be good to get vaccinated but uh but who knows at this point in time i just don't think it it definitely didn't help me <laughs> as far as is I, I felt like i had no protection yeah you know after being vaccinated what, what did you think of uh of all the supplements that joe rogan said he took when he got because they were they were shitting all over him all over the news and everything saying that you know he was taking all this ridiculous stuff like deworm horse dewormer and all that stuff but you know he took a lot of stuff yeah, well, he took monoclonal antibodies. And, and too, yeah. NAD, mm -hmm. right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. monoclonal antibodies. I took NAD. So I'm of the opinion, so I take, 
you know, I take zinc, I take quercetin, I take, actually have prescription vitamin D that I had on hand that I, that I took for that. And, uh, prescription vitamin, vitamin D. D. Yeah. Okay. It's actually prescription vitamin D2. So okay. I'll take uh, D2 and D3, quercetin, zinc, uh, vitamin C, um, a couple other things here and there. Like, uh, I mean, for lifting, I take creatine monohydrate, uh, acetyl L-carnitine, mm. I think is really good. If you're on a ketogenic diet, your body gets depleted in carnitine because carnitine transports is a part of the uh, fatty acid transporter. So we tend to deplete it just because we're burning so much fat. So I do that. And then I took a lysine, which an amino acid kind of can boost your immune system and then exogenous ketones. So I think all of that and omega-3 fatty acids, I right. think, are, are right. good too. So that's, you know, I, I tell people, I don't really take supplements, but I guess I just mentioned quite a, a lot few of vitamins. I take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's all, you know, I, I wake up in the morning and I set all the powders out. I buy pretty much everything, like bulk powders, a lot of things, uh, except, you know, of course, vitamin D is not or zinc. Uh, and then I scoop it all and just take it in the morning. And then I'll put another in a shaker bottle, some of the powders, and I'll drink that like midday or mm. right before dinner or something. Uh, but I do think that there's a case for supplements. Uh, ivermectin's a little bit. Uh, I think there is some benefit. It needs to be studied more. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have we have cows, we have animals, we have tons of it on the farm. I didn't I didn't dig into the uh, <laughs> that my veterinary stash. Of, it's it's uh, funny ivermectin. that it's it's in the uh, the the heartworm stuff that you give dogs. Yeah, right. It's dog. like if you read the ingredients, it's actually in there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's in uh, you know right down there. Tractor supply, I think they were like sold out of it. Uh, I I do think there is a case to be made. I think we just need to study it a little bit further. Yeah. Right. Uh, as you know, hydroxy uh, quinone and like the quinine derivatives too. I think we need to to look at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's funny. The, the the crazy weird thing about it is the vaccine is supposed to be for prevention, and this other stuff that yeah. you, that people are talking about is for treatment. Like treatment yeah. of it. Like once you already have it, like what's the best way to treat it? Yep. You know, and people the hospitals say, wait until you need to be on it until you can't breathe and then you show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my hunch is that in the very early case, maybe for uh, as a prophylactic measure, ivermectin could potentially be useful for mm-hmm. some people who are at high risk. This is what this is just kind of I'm just speculating here. And and also potentially good to have on hand at the first sign of maybe getting it. Mm-hmm. So ivermectin. But I think the science is just needs to catch up and support that. There's mm-hmm. there's some science, but it's just not the large clinical trials that mm-hmm. we need. And the reason for that not being funded is sort of beyond the scope of this. Yeah, every <laughs> time I think I have it or I think I'm yeah. getting something or I feel something in my throat, I just stop eating for 24 yes, hours. Yeah. That's what I... Yeah. Just do, or I go in the sauna. I don't know if the sauna helps. That maybe that's stupid, but I go in the sauna. I sit in the sauna and I stop eating. I uh, yeah, it's actually that's two good points. So when you stop eating, then your body has less to deal with, right? So right. when we're eating, that's a big hit to our immune system because half of our immune system, more than half, is in our gut. So a lot of our immune cells and immune system function is dealing with the food that we're eating to neutralize. Because every time we eat, you know, if we eat a salad, if we eat a meal, there's a lot of toxic things that need to be neutralized. It's just part of, you know, digestion. And uh, not having to deal with that liberates the immune system is kind of like, you know, a bunch of little soldiers, right? So it liberates uh, a much bigger army for immune surveillance. And we can deal with uh, viruses that are Mm -hmm. attacking us. And the sauna is kind of interesting because we know heat, will kill COVID. Heat kills a lot of different viruses. So if you get into a sauna, uh, one thing that we did, I kind of, 
uh, I finally, we have a, we have an old spa jacuzzi thing uh, at our house. It's a big concrete old thing. And I, I fired it up after a couple of years. I finally got a heater for it and, uh, and I tinkered with it so I can push it beyond what it's supposed to. Right. So I can go to basically where it's boiling. So wow. <laughs> I get it under certain conditions, you know, I can get it above like what's considered like the safe limit. And I did, I heated it up to as much as possible and got in that thing. Uh, and I think that really helped me recover. I think, you know, that's, that's why we produce a fever, you know, a high, just boosting your body temperature a couple degrees makes right. you, uh, it has an antiviral effect. It can hmm. decrease viral shedding. If we're in the process of viral replication, it can knock that down. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I think that was smart to, to do what you're doing, you know, going into the sauna and, um, not you don't want to be pushing your body really hard with exercise because that could compromise your immune system right and actually feed the fire but uh but fasting and sauna are two good approaches are so have you done is there any studies that show the benefits of sauna combined with like ketogenic diet and and cold even like sauna people going in the sauna and then going in really cold water yeah like i'll do that sometimes i'll get in the sauna yeah. and i'll come right out and i'll jump in my pool like right now it's 65 in my pool or no yep. i'm sorry 55 in my pool yeah yeah same here i actually turned off our pool heater uh and then i'll use a sauna and jump in and yeah. now after yeah so that that's pretty cool uh, we had ice, you know, we're in Florida now, but, uh, yeah, we had ice over, we had like half inch of ice over our cow watering stations and stuff. So, uh, ridiculous. So yeah, I, am a big advocate of that, you know, cold therapy, mm -hmm. sauna. Uh, so you're asking about ketogenic diet. I think the ketogenic diet will enhance the adaptive responses associated mm. with sauna. And I think, uh, like a lot of scenarios. So we study therapeutic, we study the ketogenic diet and then therapeutic ketosis induced with exogenous ketones. We study that too in the context of extreme environments and have seen that the body is much more resilient and adaptable when it's in a state of ketosis. Okay. And uh, the reasons for that are reasons, you know, that we are investigating. But uh, I could probably come up with speculation as to why that's happening. But mm -hmm. we're still researching that. Cool. Well, Dom, thank you for doing this. That's two hours. Um, oh, wow. Where can the people listening and, and watching find more of your work, your website, everything that you're doing? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Give me this platform to speak. Uh, ketonutrition.org. So ketonutrition.org. Uh, we have a blog there. We're pretty active on that. We posted a blog this morning on bipolar disorder, actually, in ketosis. So uh, we are very interested in actually advancing areas of science that are underfunded. And one area is actually metabolic psychiatry. So we are going to uh, kind of have a meeting, a separate meeting at the Metabolic Health Summit. So if people are interested in attending an event where they have access to scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs scrambling to the space, and influencers too will be there in Santa Barbara in the first week in May, I uh, encourage you to go to Metabolic Health Summit. So we bring everybody together to talk about many of the different topics that we we're discussing today. And uh, Noverso will be there too, actually. So, I gotta order some more of that stuff. Yeah, so uh, ketonutrition.org, go to metabolicsummit.com uh, uh, and get more information about speakers. We have speakers from Harvard and Yale and Stanford speaking on many topics that we hit today, including uh, 
basically, we break it up into brain health and cancer, and then we have metabolic optimization. And then we have uh, quite a few entrepreneurs who will be speaking on the space about the different technologies emerging that are helping this community, whether it be ketone supplements or wearable devices. You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, interest in attendees there for that. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dom. I very much appreciate it. And I'll link uh, the stuff in the show notes below. Appreciate it. Thanks, Danny. Goodbye, world. Thank you.